Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be, to, be Christ. to Christ. Thank you, Anna Caroline. So, um, you probably can tell by now that there's a reason why we're referring to this sermon as the scariest thing that Jesus ever said. Uh, there are going to be two surprises in heaven. There'll actually probably be a whole lot of surprises, but two of them we can be sure of. The first is we're going to be surprised by the kinds of people who will be there. Uh, it will include lifetime polygamists like King David and King Solomon. It will include chronic xenophobes like the Apostle Peter. It will include career prostitutes like Rahab. It will include crooked and unbaptized people like the thief on the cross. It will also include reckless hedonists like the prodigal son who took his inheritance early and then went out and squandered it on prostitutes and drunkenness and wild living. Heaven will include those kinds of people. Maybe you're one of those kinds of people, and that's good news to you. Heaven will also include, and this will be the second uh, surprise, um, the, the surprise that, uh, of the people who won't be there. And uh, Jesus alludes to this throughout uh, even the Sermon on the Mount, here in this text, uh, and also in chapter 23 of Matthew in particular when he talks about the scribes and the Pharisees. And so the scribes and the Pharisees were essentially the first century, century equivalent of, of uh, pastors, of Bible teachers, of writers of Christian books and blogs. And Jesus says some very uh, strong things in Matthew 23 uh, to the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, you who have been the, the religious professionals all your life, you, you claim to know God, you claim to have God as your father, but the truth of the matter is that the devil of hell is your father, and you are sons of hell. He's really sharp. And you know, the Sermon on the Mount is kind of ending this way. I didn't anticipate this when we were first planning the series, that it would, um, it would end in, in what feels like a pile-on. Uh, you've got four explicit back-to-back -back teachings from Jesus about the judgment day that's coming, that we will all face. And it's, it's really four separate verbal shockwaves about the same thing. He talks about a broad and a narrow path. He talks about true teachers and false teachers. He talks about a shaky foundation on the sand and a, and a sturdy foundation built on the rock. And, and here this week, he, he talks about true disciples of Jesus and false disciples, real followers and counterfeit followers of Christ. And, and, and his, his target audience, his specific target audience here in this teaching is those who all of their lives have thought that they are in. But the truth is that they're out. 
And it's no small number either. I mean, Jesus says, many of you will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do this, that, and the other in your name? And I will respond to them, depart from me, I never knew you. And so there's no more important question to engage with than the question, is my faith real? Because as uh, the late Francis Schaeffer once said, it's quite possible to be both sincere and sincerely wrong. This is why the Puritans wrote volumes and volumes uh, about the subject that they called false peace or false assurance that, that, that we belong to Christ when perhaps we may not. And, and so, th- there's no more important question in the history of the world to get settled than this one. Am I in or am I not? And what's the way forward? And so, th- there, there are two headings, who are the false disciples and how can we know who's on the inside versus who's on the outside? And so, so the first question I want to work with here is, who are the false disciples? Who are they? There's a parable that Jesus taught that, that helps us see that false disciples are not very easy to spot when, when, when you're looking at the life of a false disciple from the outside. He, he gives this parable called the, the wheat and the weeds. And one of the things that Jesus says, and the wheat represents those who are, are truly followers of Christ and who have belonging with Him, and, and the weeds are those who appear to be followers of Christ but are not, who, like the demons, believe but they shudder because they're, they're, they're not really, you know, anchored into Christ in the true sense of the word. And one of the things that Jesus says about the wheat and the weeds is that all of their lifetimes they're going to grow up together, and, and, and most of you, you're not going to be able to tell the difference between the two. And... Um, you know, so, so what he's saying is that, you know, one, one, one group is going to be authentic and one group is going to appear authentic but not be. And I, I think some of the clues, you know, as to what he's talking about here with respect to those who appear authentic but aren't is in verse 22 where, where Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not perform many mighty works in your name, did we not? And so, you've got three, three things right here that are sort of classic external indicators that faith is there. Doctrinal correctness is one of them. When they, when they say, Lord, you want to say, Jesus, you are Lord, the Greek word there is kurios, which is the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament Yahweh. They are, they are attributing deity to Jesus Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. They're saying that with, with vigor, and, and they're, they're saying it with emotional enthusiasm because they're not just saying, Lord, they're saying, Lord, Lord. And if you remember the teaching from last week, this was how in those times and in that t- part of the world, they put an exclamation point on something that they were trying to say. So, we punctuate in order for, to, to make an emphasis, uh, you know, we, we, we punctuate with, with things like exclamation points and italics and bold print. The way they punctuated for, for emphasis was through repetition. You know, you see it in King David when he's, when he's grieving over the death of his son Absalom, Absalom and he says, oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son Absalom, or, or Jesus when he talks to Martha and he's trying to get through to her. 
Martha, Martha, or, or, or Jesus when He's crying out to the Father from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There, there, there's deep emotion directed toward God from the many who will say on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not? And then the third indicator is that there's, there's a life of Christian ministry and, and active service for the causes of the kingdom. Did we not prophesy in your name? Were we not preachers, in other words, and teachers? Did we not cast out demons and perform mighty works? Didn't we do great things in your name? All for you, Lord. Did we not? And what's, again, so disorienting here is the, that the optics are really good. You know, all the external indicators, or at least all these external indicators of faith, they're all there. You know, I mentioned, um, you know, the Protestant Reformation a few moments ago in the announcements. And so, you know, Martin Luther, who, who is um, believed by most to be sort of the forerunner or the pioneer of the Protestant Reformation, many know this, many don't know this, but, but historians will know this, that, that, that Luther was a priest for many, many, many years. He was a priest in the church uh, who never grasped the gospel of justification by faith as a priest and as a monk until, you know, this, this moment that he had, this sort of epiphany moment that he had reading Romans in 1517 A.D. Or Abraham Kuyper is another one. Um, you know, Kuyper is, is really the, um, uh, you know, sort of the source for CPC's vision statement as a church, or our, our, our mission statement. I mean, our mission statement is to follow Christ in His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. It was Abraham Kuyper who said that God looks at every square inch of His universe, people, places, and things. He looks at every square inch and declares, it is mine. And if you've been through the Gotham program through uh, Nashville Institute for Faith and Work, uh, you know that, 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 that you, have, you, you have studied for a period of nine to ten months in depth. Kuyperian theology, Kuyperian understanding and, and, and lenses of looking into the Scriptures and into the truth and beauty and history of God. But Abraham Kuyper before he was a theologian, before he was a politician, before he was an educator, many people don't know this, he was a pastor. He was an unconverted pastor. And uh, it, it wasn't until an elderly woman, after, after hearing him preach a sermon, came up to him after that sermon and said, Pastor, I suspect that you are not converted. I suspect, Pastor, that you don't really know Christ. Can we talk about this? And and they went out and they talked about this, and, and, and the light bulbs went on for Kuiper, and he realized that he wasn't really an authentic believer in Christ, and that's, where he, that's how he was converted. He was led to Christ by one of his parishioners. There's precedent in the Bible, too. Familiar with the name Judas? Judas was one of the twelve who, who spent three years with Jesus prophesying, casting out demons, performing mighty works in the name of Jesus. Judas was, for all intents and purposes, the church treasurer. He's the one who carried the money bags for the disciples. Uh, when he prayed over people in the name of Christ, people were healed from their diseases. Demons were cast out of people. He spoke, Judas did, on behalf of the poor. And he looked at Jesus and said, Lord, Lord, probably every day at some point. 
And when Jesus instituted the Last Supper, you know, the, 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 the night he was betrayed, before going to the cross, you know, Jesus says to his disciples, one of you will betray me. And it's not like all the disciples said, well, <laughs> I've always suspected that about Judas. Now I know that my suspicions are confirmed. None of them said that. Instead, all of them started saying, is it me, Lord? Like, nobody, nobody sus suspected that Judas, the weed, was not a grain of wheat. Three years of full-time ministry, Judas, unconverted the entire time. Lives are being changed through his ministry, but he remained unchanged. And then there's Peter, who also betrayed Jesus at the end, denied him publicly three times. And what Jesus is getting at here in the Sermon on the Mount is that just as Peter at his very worst was never on the outside, Judas at his very best was never on the inside. Does that make you tremble a little bit? The answer is no. You, you need this teaching more than anybody else in here. What Jesus is describing here is what you could call a cosmic name dropper. And Nashville, for all of its strengths, is a name dropping town. We love to drop our names, right? Because dropping a name is currency to gain respect for ourselves and it's currency to gain access to certain circles, certain environments, certain privileges. And so, let's say that, that I, Scott Sauls, was feeling bummed out because the Little Big Town concert at the Ryman sold out so quickly and I couldn't get two tickets to take my wife. Let's just say, hypothetically, that happened. <laughs> and let's say that I, Scott Sauls, called the Ryman, the box office, and said, so, wasn't able to get tickets, but, but you should know I am like family to the members of Little Big Town. And so, can I have my two tickets, please? And, and they would, of course, doing their job, respond, well, sir, I, I need to confirm it with the band's management. And so, give, us, give me your number and I'll get back to you. And the truth is, about Scott Saul's, I am very familiar with a lot of their lyrics. I have heard them sing live three times. I know that their names are Karen, Jimmy, Kimberly, and Philip. I know anecdotes about their personal lives. I've actually had dinner in the same space as they have had dinner. I have shaken their hands. I have had conversation with them, brief conversation with them. I've looked them all in the eye. And so the Ryman calls me and says, we talked to the management, sir, and I'm sorry to say, they never knew you. <laughs> I've never heard of you. And of course, I could 
protest and say, what? After all the money that I've spent for the little big town cause? After all the the lyrics that I've learned and all the songs that I have sung with, with, with emotion and with, with passion, all the times that I showed up, that time I was around a table in a room where they were also around a table, that time I shook their hands, the way I've evangelized their work to other people. And respectfully, the person on the other end, says, on the other end of the line says, Sir, you are not describing somebody who's family, you are describing a groupie. And what Jesus is describing here is Jesus groupies, name droppers. I know His lyrics. I know Him by heart. I've seen Him live. I know a lot of anecdotes about His life. I know personal stories about His life. I've told these stories to others. I eat around His table every week and drink around His table every week. I give, I've given, let me tell you how much money I've given to the cause. The one thing you lack is a relationship. The one thing you lack is the personal aspect, which is the whole aspect of all of this. You know, when Spurgeon told his congregation, I suspect that maybe 20% of you are true Christians, are true followers of Jesus. He was alluding to the other 80% as Jesus groupies, as people who may have spend, spent their entire lives around Jesus, but never with Him always side by side with him, but never face to face. And Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. He said, there are many people who come to the church to be drugged, to get some kind of buzz, to get some kind of high, whether it's a buzz or a high uh, that comes from a sense of belonging with a group of other people, whether it's a buzz or a high that, that enables you to walk away feeling like, I knew it, I'm right. Or a buzz or a high that you get from music or a buzz or a high that you get from criticizing music. A false disciple, Jesus says, has passion for God's benefits, but little passion for God. The false disciple loves God's concerts, loves God trivia, loves having mutual friends with God, but has no relationship with God. Did we not? It's transactional instead of personal. It's removed instead of intimate. It's balcony when you could have gone backstage, but you chose the balcony. Here's one indicator. Somebody comes up to you and says, what did you think of the worship today? And you say, oh, it's great, or oh, it sucked. But then they say, how is it with your soul? Tell me, what does Jesus mean to you these days? And 
and it's either crickets or you change the subject or you give an awkward answer that's not true and really what you're doing is just parroting something that you've heard from somebody, well, I'm so blessed or I'm so whatever. Did we not? Did we not do this and this and this and this and this? Aren't we like family? No, you're not like family. You are a groupie. Jesus trivia will get you nowhere with Jesus. Being around Jesus instead of being with Him will get you nowhere with Jesus. Are you afraid yet? I hope you're afraid. I hope you're trembling. So I think that for, for Jesus to tell this kind of story four times at the end of the most important sermon ever preached in the history of the world, this matters. He wants us shaking for a moment. How can we know who's inside and who's outside? You know, I was watching Stephen Colbert a while back, and he was interviewing Ricky, Ricky Gervais. Every time Ricky Gervais is on there, I, I, I love to watch Colbert, because Colbert engages him on the subject of God, because Ricky Gervais, very accomplished comedian and thoughtful person, and um, Colbert is a committed Roman Catholic. He makes that, makes that known, and one of the things that Colbert said in the conversation was, you want to know what I believe? I believe that there is one person who can truly know that he's going to heaven, and it's Jesus. But thank the Lord that we also have more authoritative words even than Stephen Colbert from Jesus' best friend, the beloved disciple John, who said, I write these things not to you who drop the name of Jesus, but to you who believe in the name of Jesus that you may know that you have eternal life in His name. So, what are the marks of the true disciple? Guess what? It's the same optics from the outside as the false disciple. True disciples will have doctrinal cor correctness. There will be a high level of commitment to every word of the Old and New Testaments. And you won't be one of those, you know, who presumes to stand upon the Word of God, you stand under it, to, to, who presumes to tamper with the God, but, but instead, with the Word of God, but instead you invite the Word of God to tamper with you. High, high view of a biblical correctness, just like the false disciples. And there'll be some level of emotional enthusiasm. That doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a hand-raiser. But it does mean that, 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 that you're going to be a feeler when it comes to God. Like there's going to be an animation, there's going to be light bulbs, there's going to be energy about you with respect to Christ. And there will be Christian ministry and Christian service emerging in your life if you're a true disciple, just like the false disciples. But there are two added more internal realities that only you and God have access to. And the first is surrender of the will. The word Lord is a definitive word. It means king. It means sovereign. It means ruler. It means the boss of you. 
you at some point along the way come to the place where you start to love when God tells you what to think, what to do, and how to live, and who to hang with, which includes people on the inside, and it also includes people on the outside. You love having God boss you around because you know that God loves you a whole lot more than you love you. And because you know that, that God knows what you need infinitely more than you know what you need. So they say that the dog is man's best friend, right? That's like the label that dogs get. And I think for the most part, we can all agree with that. Our dog Lulu, little pipsqueak, a lot of you have met Lulu. Um, Lulu is, um, she's neurotic, she's needy. Um, she is fiercely loyal. Um, she, know, she can smell it when you're sick, and when, when she knows that you're sick, she, she will not leave your side. Like she, will snug, she will not leave your side because she, you know, she's on her watch. She's got your back. She is your best friend in the world until, until you start messing with her one, don't go there. You stink, and it's time for a bath. She, she has a panic attack when water hits her face, and so, and this is very real time for me. I've got scratches on my arms to prove it. I gave Lulu a bath yesterday. She pushes back like a fighter with her, her claws when you bathe her. And so, she is mostly surrendered, but not fully surrendered, which is what you call agreement, not surrender. So, Dan Doriani, who, who is… Uh, professor to, to a lot of our pastors in seminary, and uh, he's preached here at Christ Press several times. He's, you know, very well-known theologian and Bible teacher. Here's what he says about agreement versus loyalty. He says, the test of loyalty to the Lord comes when His will crosses ours. We truly obey. We know we've truly obeyed God whenever we obey a command that requires painful or strange actions. Painful because sometimes true discipleship is costly. Like Bonhoeffer said, when Jesus calls a man or a woman to himself, he bids them come and die. Or like Jesus said, you know, anyone who would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So there's all this constant dying to ourselves as, as part of the picture of, of loyalty to Christ. And then where, where Doriani says, you know, we do strange actions for, for the Lord, that's, that's when we obey what He says when it doesn't make sense to us because we, we've come to the point of embracing the reality that His thoughts and His ways are higher than ours. And so, you know, I talked about this a little bit last week. This means that our approach to the Bible includes paying especially close attention to those parts of the Bible that we are least likely to highlight and underline. And so, if you're kind of like a, if you're, let's say you're a left-leaning social justice person, guess what? You got to pay especially close attention to the stuff in the Bible about personal ethics because personal ethics matter. And if you're a right-leaning religious conservative, guess what? The poor are your responsibility. 
You can't just pass it off to trickle-down and say, oh, trickle-down's going to take care of that. No, it doesn't. Trickle-down stops. Trickle-down has a ceiling, and then there's a whole system below the bottom ceiling of trickle-down that is untouched by trickle-down because trickle-down doesn't want to work with this. And so this is where Christians come in to do justly and love mercy as you walk humbly with your God. And so pay attention to the parts you don't like. Conservatives, get into Amos. Liberals, get into Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount for that matter. Because as it says in verse 21, we're talking about entering a kingdom which assumes a king. We're talking about, in verse 23, lawlessness, which means there's a lawgiver. You know, Ted Koppel uh, gave this um, commencement address at Duke University some time ago. Um, Again, I feel like I'm always making reference to people that, you know, if you're under 40, maybe you've never heard of them, and if you're over 40, you know exactly who I'm talking about. Ted Koppel is a very celebrated journalist. And so, speaking at Duke University to graduates, he said this, we say, shoot up if you must, but use a clean needle. We say, enjoy sex whenever and with whomever you wish, but wear a condom. No, the answer is no. Not because it isn't cool or smart or because you might end up in jail or dying in an AIDS ward, but no, because it is wrong. In its purest form, truth is not a polite tap on the shoulder. It is a howling reproach. What Moses brought down from Mount Sinai was not ten suggestions. They are commandments. It's just another way of saying that true disciples follow Jesus not chiefly because of His benefits, that it's a cause to be part of, it's a people to belong with, it's, It's music to enjoy, even though those are great side benefits to be celebrated and enjoyed and embraced and entered into fully, of course. But I think Tim Keller wraps it up really well. He says this, we are taking the Lord's name in vain unless we're willing to say, I give up my independence. Show me what the will of the Lord is and I will do it. I don't care how I feel. I don't care what my friends say. I don't care what popular opinion is. I don't care what the experts say. His name is King. And so now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a little bit of whiplash. Because the first internal indicator is sur- surrender of the will. But the second internal indicator is that wherever you have been faithful and wherever you have surrendered, you couldn't imagine ever boasting about it, especially before the judgment seat of Christ. You notice in verse 21, he talks about whoever does the will of my Father. And yet, just one chapter back, he says, when you pray, pray our Father. Because my Father is your Father, and your Father is my Father in heaven. Father, that adoption word that reminds us of what Ephesians 1 says, that before the foundations of the universe were laid, He chose you in Christ. And in love, He predestined you to be adopted as His daughters and sons through Jesus Christ our Lord.
thereby, before you breathed your first breath, before you were even conceived by your mother and father, God moved your judgment day from the future to the past, and so you got nothing to be afraid of. You fear God, you never have to be afraid of God. You fear God, you never have to be afraid of Him. That's the twist. True disciples are under the law, but, but not under the law's burden. They've been liberated to, to, to what the, the reformers and the theologians call the third use of the law, which involves enjoyment of it, because you start to see as you walk along the path of your designer and your creator that this is actually what you do to flourish. This is actually what you do to thrive. This is actually what you do to, to be a full human being and less of an animal. You know, when Jesus sent out His 72 disciples to, to minister to, to crowds and crowds of people, it says that a while later they came back to Jesus and they said, Lord, guess what? Guess what, Lord? We're prophesying and casting out demons and performing mighty works in Your name. Even the demons are subject to us. And, and Jesus says, oh, really? Even the demons are subject to you? I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. You ain't seen nothing yet. But then he goes on and he says this, do not rejoice in these things. And he's not saying don't enjoy it when God brings fruit and beautiful things through your life and through your ministry. Of course you enjoy that. He's saying don't rejoice in them. In other words, don't hang your hat on them. Don't turn them into your validating record. Don't turn them into your validating record because this is your validating record. So rejoice in this, Jesus says, that your names are already written in the Father's book. From the beginning of time and before then, your names have been written in the book, not by the righteous things that you have done, not by your performance, not by your moral virtue, not by your progressive virtue, not by your conservative virtue but your name was written because your name was written there, because God decided to set His love on you before you did anything good or bad. And so, this afternoon at four, we're going to commemorate, I'll close with this, we're going to commemorate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Remember, Martin Luther, believed by many to be the chief sort of instigator of the Protestant Reformation, which took great courage. I mean, he stood before councils, he stood before um, people who were bringing him up on charges of heresy because he dared to confront the corruptions that were, that, that were present in the church that were oppressing people. He dared to stand up and confront those corruptions where church leaders were actually making people buy with money their salvation in order to fill the coffers. And he, there was this con confrontation that we'll talk about a lot more in our Reformation series coming up in a few weeks, but there was this confrontation where Luther looked at, at, at the people who, who, who were holding the gavel in their hand, ready to pronounce judgment on him. And at the risk of his own life, he says, my conscience is held captive to the Word of God, and to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. And it was, thing, it was actions like that that, that that triggered a movement that shook the earth. And so, you can look back and think, if there's anybody in the world 
who might have a validating record to present to God on the judgment day, maybe it would be Martin Luther who stood alone like Jesus did. But on his deathbed, here's what Luther did. Now, I got the details in this story a little bit wrong, and so our resident Reformation geek, David Filson, corrected me, which I'm very thankful for. Luther died more or less alone. But before he died, he, he wrote on a piece of paper a short note that some of his friends discovered after his death. And it was two sentences, the first in German and the second in Latin. First sentence, we are all beggars. Second sentence, this is true. We're all beggars, this is true. When we're on our deathbed, I can assure you that will be the thought that crosses your mind. You will not be accumulating your, 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 your resume ready to present to the one who created you. You will go out just like Luther did, if you're, if you're aware of it, that you're a beggar and that this is true because we're all beggars. There, but there are two places we can go with that self-realization whenever it comes, and that's two other sets of dying words. They're the dying words of Buddha, which were strive without ceasing. How hopeless that is. Strive without ceasing. Or there are the words of Jesus that we can hang our hat on. It is finished. Give me Jesus. Because there's no better news in the universe than to have your judgment day moved from the future to the past. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for heavy words that shake us into the recognition that the moment we come to you and say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, it is at that very moment that you pronounce over us, well done good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Save us from shame and guilt through the gospel. Save us from false peace through the gospel. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.